Hi, I'm Dr. Rahman, and it's been a minute, but I have a guest that I think you will find worth listening to. Are you a woman juggling lots of different aspects, work, home, personal life? On the outside, does it look as though you have it all together, but on the inside, you feel like you're just holding on, unhappy, crying? If you feel as though you need help, if you think you might need to talk to someone, listen to this podcast. It may help you or it may help someone that you know. Please share. Good morning, Dr. Montero. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me here. It's a pleasure. Let's start off. Would you give us a little background about yourself? Where were you born? Where did you go to school? Just fill us in. So I was born here in the city of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Um, I went to high school at the Philadelphia High School for Girls. So that was like a historical um, all-girls public high school, one of the few in the country. And I feel like it really um, gave me a sense of myself as like what I could do as a girl, a young woman in the world. And then I went to college at a historically black college and university, Howard University in DC. And that was sort of, I went at the age of 17 and it just formed so much of my view of myself in the world, Mm -hmm. Um, majored in psychology. And I went to um, immediately, I guess I love school because I went right away to, to a doctoral program at the University of Virginia oh. um, to study clinical psychology. Ended up coming back to finish my doctorate at Howard University um, in clinical psychology with a concentration in neuropsychology and culture and mental health. So I was one of those people that just loved school, went wow. from Philadelphia, D.C., Virginia, and... Okay, a couple yeah. questions for uh-huh. you. Um, sounds like you got a solid background in women empowerment by going mm-hmm. to an all-girls high school. Yes. Then you went to a historically black college, and so you were re- re- reinforced your love and history of black culture. Mm-hmm. Yes. What made you decide um, clinical psychology? Well, when I was in high school, I, a family friend was a black male psychologist. And another family friend was a black woman neuropsychologist. So I would go to things like lectures at Drexel University when I was in high school to learn about like the brain or with these family friends or I would talk to this other male psychologist. So I had exposure at an early age seeing people do things related to what I was so interested in. I've been interested in psychology and like the human mind and behavior since I was like in high school, maybe probably before. So that in combination with actually seeing people doing it and like, oh, my friend, my family friend Angela would be like, oh, come to Drexel. They're going to be talking about, you know, what happens to the brain after stroke. Or I would talk to my male, you know, family friend. Oh, I have my private practice. I'm a clinical psychologist. 
So it was all just very normal to me. And so when I got to college, I met some of the first people I met were psychology professors um, who had done a lot in the field as black psychologists. So it was just like, oh, okay, here's something I, I love. Here are people doing it and I can do it. Sounds like representation matters. Yes. Now that you say that, yes. That's right. <laughs> you were exposed to it and made it possible for you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. And so where has your work taken you? It has literally taken, taken me around the globe. Um, mm -hmm. I did my dissertation research in East Africa, in Ethiopia. Um, I was there for about 10 months. And um, I worked in the Middle East, in Bahrain. Um, I've done a lot of research in West Africa, Senegal. Um, I've um, lived in Botswana. Like, I literally became an international psychologist. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. Mm -hmm. So what type of work, what was your dissertation about in East Africa? It was looking at um, the way that different societies, so that specifically Ethiopia, understands mental health and mental illness. So I know you know about research. It was a qualitative study, kind of interviewing different people, different stakeholders or important people in the community. And I was looking at traditional healers, hmm. um, health workers, as well as, you know, everyday people to interview them about how they understood and defined mental illness and also mental health. What did you find? I found that it was so sophisticated. Like I, people have this way of understanding distress that is very holistic. So people would sometimes attribute certain behaviors to, um, oh, it's a spiritual thing or no, that's because of stress or no, that's a family thing. So people in their minds have an idea of what causes different type of distress. And then that, that determines what help they seek. Was that particular to that culture? Meaning this was just specific to East Africa or have you found that to be true elsewhere also? I have found it to be true elsewhere. I used that study specifically to kind of get the details of what it would look like in, in Ethiopian society. But through my other travels and work, I found that to be the case, even with the black community here, That's right? What I, I knew you were going to say. Yeah, because, you know, mental health is starting to be um, acceptable, or mental distress mm -hmm. is starting to be acceptable, whereas before it was almost a sign of weakness. Yes. If yes. you had a mental health issue, you weren't strong enough or the other answer is that you needed to go to church. Yes, yes. And you needed to pray about it. And so you're saying that those type of sentiments were also found in East Africa? Yes, yes. I, wherever, you, wherever I have been, I'm not, I haven't been everywhere, but I've been to more than 50 countries, that idea of sort of... Um, there's some stigmas around struggling with mental and emotional distress. And so we have to kind of normalize getting help and also meeting people where they are. Yes. So by me talking to traditional healers in Ethiopia, those were almost like the frontline people. Those are the people that 
people would go to if they had mental and emotional First. Yes. Okay. Just like almost here, like people will go to the pastor or some whatever it is that they feel comfortable with. So I found it so important to connect with those people because I'm a psychologist. I am often years down the line. Someone right. comes to see me. Right. So what was their reception to you? Or was it seen as Western medicine? We don't deal with that. Um, I, you know, here's the thing. You have to make connections. So I had made connections with a psych an Ethiopian psychologist in D.C., who connected me with other professors and, and psychiatrists in Ethiopia. So that helped me to gain entry to, to do my research. And people were curious, like, oh, okay, you're talking about santé mental, like mental health. Um, and they were kind of intrigued. I didn't feel rejected. I just felt like people were like, okay, what is she talking about? Um, and people were open to explaining to me their experience and their, their thoughts and opinions about it. So did you find depression? Did you find, you know, mental illnesses or concerns similar to what we experience here in East Africa? I would say yes and no. Um, I think in, in a lot of other cultures, there's more what we call um, somatization. People experience their distress through their bodies. So people may not say, I'm depressed. But they will talk about physical things. Oh, my stomach, my back, my head. Yeah. I'm tired. People, you know, we, we know from like World Health Organization research, depression causes more um, economic, you know, people missing work, not being able to be productive than almost some physical illnesses. So a lot of times people will express it in terms of they're not able to function or what's going on with them physically before they say something like, I'm sad or I'm depressed. So how do you weed through that? How do you figure out this person really has a physical illness mm -hmm. or this person has depression? Well, once you learn to listen and you're able to dig a little deeper, so people might first tell you the physical stuff and you start asking, well, you know, have you had any illnesses, any injuries? No. Okay. What's going on in your life? And they start to tell you. So you kind of start digging and you understand depression pretty much looks the same. It's just that the way people describe it may be mm. differently. So once you start digging, you get, okay, this is an episode. There's a lot of fatigue, loss of appetite, difficulty sleeping, um, self-criticism. You know, people, when you're depressed, the depressed brain doesn't see it yourself clearly. So you're very down on yourself. So you start digging and you, you kind of get to the root of those experiences that people have. And have you found that treatment for depression is similar across the globe or if in East Africa, the way you would treat depression is distinctly different from what we might do here in Philadelphia? I think it has to do with availability. So therapy is, you know, people use what's available as well as what they believe. So people use a lot of religious coping, a lot of traditional healers, family support. All of those things can be important, but one thing that is true is that globally there are disparities and not in developing countries, mm -hmm. the availability, if people wanted more sort of robust treatments for depression, it's not available. 
or for bipolar or for anxiety, right? So a lot of times really trained people who could do counseling are not available or certain you know, medications, if that's what people would choose, are not available. So that's kind of where I, my soapbox has been. It's like, we wanna, we wanna level, we wanna have equity in what's available. And then if people wanna choose to do something different, that that's one thing. But a lot of times when people have severe depression, the kind of treatments we have here aren't available in a lot of developing countries. And it's your sense that if it were available, people would use it. I think it would take time, sure. right? I think it depends on so many factors, but it's hard to even know if it's not available at all, right? So I think um, I've always been an advocate of partnering. So Western medicine, perhaps partnering with traditional healers or with religious you know, leaders, because that's where people go, but those people aren't always equipped when people are suffering in just extreme ways. Like if someone is having suicidal thoughts, yes. you know, they aren't always equipped. Or if someone has prolonged depression or anxiety, like OCD or something that's really affecting, affecting their functioning, mm -hmm. you know, those people aren't always equipped to help them. And we're talking about the healers. Yes, yes. Fascinating. Yeah. And so <laughs> your work from East Africa, where else did you go? Um, I was in the Middle East and, and also Southern Africa and West Africa. Similar type of studies in those places? Um, similar studies. Um, well, Middle East, it was more work, not research, like practical work. I was working in an international school. Um, but similar research that I've done in Southern Africa and West Africa. Similar so the question <laughs> is, what made you decide to travel so much and do this global work? I think big. I can, when I see something, I want to know, like the way you're asking me, oh, how does this compare Philadelphia versus East Africa? I want to know. So I go and I find out, like, I want to know, well, the things that we accept as normal or truths about human behavior, does that apply in other places? So I've always been curious. My parents sent me on this international um, camp when I was 13. In, in Eastern Europe, I was there for five weeks. So that sparked my, I met so many people from children from different parts of the world. It was a camp. Yep, it was a five week, it was, some, it was an international children's camp. And how old were you? I was 13. Wow. Very impressionable age. Wow. And that opened my mind to say like, there's, there's a whole world, like not to be cliche, but there's a whole world out there. So if you're just trying to understand things from one location, you're going to miss out on understanding from the rest of the world's perspective. Well, that was very proactive of your parents. Yes. <laughs> very good. And so traveled many places and you came back to Philadelphia mm -hmm. to start a clinical practice. Yes. Well, my first clinical practice was in Washington, D.C., but I've been, it's like, a, what do you call it? Hip hop, hip tic-tac-toe. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds diverse. It sounds as though you have a very broad perspective of things. Yes. And that's good. Mm -hmm. And I'm able, it helps me to adapt. So when I'm in Philadelphia, I have to understand Philadelphia. I can't, 
you know, I have to understand this culture and this locality. And when I'm in another, you know, I'm able to, when they say, in, when in Rome, yes, right, it helps you to be able to say, like, what is the core struggle here? Because in Philadelphia, it's a very different thing in terms of, like, Black women. It's trauma. It's generational sort of um, strength and resilience that now we know is kind of tearing down our minds and our bodies because we can't, you know, we're not allowed to be vulnerable and... Talk some more about that. Do you find that particular to Black women in in the United States, in Philadelphia, mm -hmm. compared to other places? Tell us more about that. Yeah, I think it takes a particular form. I think there's a, a, there's a version of that in, in many different places, but I think it has a very specific historical and cultural like form in in America in the US where black women are supposed to be strong. Yes, it's a badge of honor to be able to do a lot. Yes, with a little. Yes. And it's been important, right? But it's like what is the cost of that? You know, it's interesting because on the way here today um, they were playing all of these songs about because tomorrow's mother's day. Oh yeah, yes, yes, yes. And it was black men and their relationship to their mother. Mm. And there's, you know, the Tupac song and there's other songs about mama and how mama was always there. And and the idea is that and I guess this is true for all men, but for black men mm -hmm. in particular. Mama, that mother figure has been that strong woman yes. who, who kind of defied the odds, that always protected her brood. Mm -hmm. And so um, mama was never allowed to be weak. Yes. Mama's never seen crying. Mm -hmm. Mama, we don't have stories about mama being depressed. Now we yes. have stories about mama praying. Mm -hmm. But um, not so that true. mama, you know, went to see the therapist. <laughs> yes, that's not in the cultural, like, memory bank. Yeah. Yeah, that is so true. And it, it's um, revered, right? Like, you just described it, the songs, the tributes. And um, it's seen as, like, the backbone of our culture and community. But, yeah, I think we're starting to recognize the costs of that. And would, cost to who? To well, I would say to the black women, but I think there's cost to everybody collectively, the community, because we we haven't even touched on black men and them not being able to be vulnerable and ask for help. So everybody suffers when everybody has to be strong all the time and not get help, because allow me to kind of people are like Nicole, you're too deep, but it's like that's what perpetuates the generational trauma. What do you mean by generational trauma? I mean, things that happen that are traumatic in families, but also in communities, losses, abuses, tragedies that never get a chance to be processed or resolved or dealt with. And it just continues through the generations through a lot of times there's the, the image of the strong mama, but we know a lot of times we have moms that lash out from their own pain. They lash out to their kids. 
um, those kids carry those scars and they continue the same cycle. And this is something I see over and over. It's not discussed, but you see it in how people cope, how people just are in their relationships, in their life, because it's a way of, of coping with their feelings that's been passed down to them. All right, so I don't want to generalize too much, mm -hmm. but this is really germane. You're saying that as a result of accepting the role as a strong black woman, mm -hmm. hiding my pain or not discussing my pain, that I am unable to teach my children how to deal with pain. You said it, you said it very clearly. That's it. And so when they hurt, the only thing they know to do is to hide the pain or to do like I did mm -hmm. and just not discuss it, not seek help, not, not work through whatever yes. the trauma may be. And then we tend to lash out, not everybody, but one way th that of coping is to lash out in like things that are not healthy for us. If you have a lot of pain, how are you going to deal with it? You might drink, you might get in yes. untoxic relationships. You might work yourself over work. But I mean, speaking as a black woman mm -hmm. and knowing that often there is a lot that you have to deal with, mm -hmm. there may not be the resources. It's one thing yes. to say, seek help, get, you know, go here, go mm -hmm. there. But if you don't have the, the person to see, if you don't have the money to see that person mm -hmm. or you don't necessarily trust yes the system then it's not as though you want to deny the pain you just have no place to put the pain or discuss yes. the pain yes yes you and i want to be clear this is not about blaming you know the victim so to speak but it's about acknowledging a problem that hopefully we're ready to tackle so the more we are even normalizing the fact that we shouldn't always have to be strong, that's an opening to saying, okay, well, is there access to resources or are there women's groups where women can kind of be open with each other and discuss things? How can we help? When I always hear people say there's no therapy and I'm like, no, your insurance covers therapy. How can we help people to access those things? But until we open up and have the conversations, we can't really get to the solutions. Yeah, I see what you're mm -hmm. saying. But I think a lot of people would say, um, we are this way because mm -hmm. we have to be. Yes. You know, and if there were alternatives, then maybe, you know, but we, we are strong and resilient and you know we can take a licking and keep mm -hmm. on ticking because there is no alternative there is no alternative yeah, yeah and 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 how do you how does one if that has been your way and you recognize that you don't want to be the super woman uh -huh. anymore mm -hmm. you just want to be a woman yeah <laughs> just a normal Being regular a yeah. is good enough right? yeah exactly and you know that there's that tendency, not only for you, but the expectation mm -hmm. from others is that you will be strong and you will be able to handle it. How do you start to break that down? 
Yeah, I mean, awareness is key, right? I always work with people on mindset, what we call mindset. There's a belief that we carry, not just black women, just people in general, that we can't be or do different. We keep telling ourselves there's no other way. We have to do it this way. And I think until we can help people with taking the first step, believing that there is an alternative. I wholeheartedly understand historically why we are where we are. Mm -hmm. My whole thing is if we don't take steps to try to change it, it's going to be another hundred years where we're going to keep saying the same thing. Gotcha. You know, so it's kind of like that's where I, I try to get people is that point where I can help them to shift their belief that it's even possible to see or do things differently. Hmm. Big Mama might have done it like this, mm -hmm. but I guarantee you she didn't want her great great grandkids to keep doing having to do the same thing. And so changing the mindset, it seems like that's always the starting point for everything. Um, you have to believe that it's not a healthy choice mm -hmm. because we see the consequences. Not only do we pass it on to our children, mm -hmm. but it may be the what's behind the high blood pressure mm -hmm. and the diabetes and the obesity. Yes. So a mental state of mind gets expressed somehow, and it gets expressed through behaviors that yeah. physically affect. Mm -hmm. Okay. So if you say, "I know." Where do you come in on, in this equation? So I, I understand <laughs> that I have this tendency to want to be or to think that I should be mm -hmm. a super black woman. I should be able to do it all. Yes. When I find that I can't do it all, then what? So I, I often get pe people don't come to me because they're like, oh, I'm a strong black woman and I'm tired of it. People come to me because they're having a practical challenge. I, I can't finish my work. Um, I, you know, things are falling apart. Like they're tangible things that are happening in their lives that feel like they're falling apart. So a lot of times when people come to me, they're not even aware of what the root cause is. So my role is to kind of help them to see. We work on finding out why they feel their life is falling apart. And that's when I kind of come in and help with the mindset. So my advice to people is, if you are struggling in an area, seek help for that thing. Don't think too big, right? Like if you're struggling at work, ask your supervisor, can I see the EAP, which is the Employee Assistance Program, right? Mm -hmm. Just to help me focus on work because I can't concentrate. Mm -hmm. Or if your kid is having problems in school, how can they get some counseling to help with that problem, right? I'm of the belief that we have to start small, working on the small, like the, the most immediate problem. And from there, like that's where I come in. When I work with people, I'm able to pull back the onion to really get at the core issue. But when they first come, it's, all, it's usually like, oh, well, I can't sleep or my work. You know, usually it's a lot of work-related stress. And then from there, we start to kind of figure out what about your mindset also needs to change to help you to shift how you're how you are relating to your work and to your family and, and yourself so tell me a little bit about your work 
um, once someone comes, mm -hmm. and, and I'm hearing you say that you start with the presenting problem. Yeah, basically, yep. And then from there, you, you said like an onion, you peel uh -huh. back until you get to the core issue, mm -hmm. and the core issue is how you think. That's one of the issues. Okay, yes. Be, well, here's the thing, right? You have to be careful. Just like you were asking me earlier, if people say, well, there's no alternative. A lot of times when you, you challenge people on how they think, they feel like you're blaming them because mm -hmm. they're like, well, I, did, I just did what I knew best. Right. And it's like, yeah, you did what was working. You did your best with what you had then. You're at a place now where you that's not working as well, right? So it's really about changing the mindset um, that says you have a right to change your mindset. Just because that was what you did then and it worked for you then, you have a right to shift because it's no longer working for you. And usually a lot of women, once they get to a certain point, either in their relationships or their career or their parenting, they start to feel that conflict because they recognize it's no longer working. Being superwoman, being self-sacrificing, never taking care of their needs, never acknowledging how they feel. Yeah. It may have gotten them to a certain point, yeah. but it can't take them beyond to the next point. Okay, so, and I know it, it has to be tailored to the person, mm -hmm. but what do you do? I mean, so I come to you, I say, this part of my life is not working. Mm -hmm. And we peel it back and we see, well, you've tried to be superwoman and now things are just falling apart. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, all right, I, I see that. I agree. Okay, yeah, mm -hmm. I agree. Mm -hmm. um, now what? We work on strategies. I don't, I don't bring people in to tear them down and say, see, like we work to, to what can work for you in your life. What can you replace that's going to be healthier for you? A lot of people overwork as a coping mechanism mm -hmm. and then they complain that they're stressed out. Right. So we have to figure out what can we replace overworking with so that you're not stressed out, but that also gives you a sense of being productive or that helps you to cope as well. Can you give an example? And I know yes. this is very hypothetical. <laughs> yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So um, an example is, let's work on your hobbies. Let's work on you really getting in touch with what you enjoy outside of, I'm just saying work, or, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, let's work on a daily routine that helps to give you energy versus drain me. I, I can't, I have to say this, I cannot tell you how many women I meet with that don't eat breakfast. And then they tell me, wow, I have these headaches that don't drink water, mm -hmm. that cook. I, I told one of my clients, you're lit. She had a puppy. I said, you're literally cleaning up the poop of a puppy, but you won't feed yourself. Mm. You're, you're potty training and cleaning the poop of a baby, but you won't stop. You told me you haven't drank water in eight hours. Yeah. And then they're like, well, no, no. And, I, and that's where we kind of, you know. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm even struggling with that <laughs> as like, you're saying that because, I mean, I want to say back to you because we were talking, and I understand yes. this is hypothetical. Mm -hmm. Someone comes in and says, I'm working. I, I, you know, 
I, I'm working and things, but I'm not able to keep up. Whereas maybe before I could keep up, now I'm not able to mm -hmm. keep up. And if you tell me, well, find time to do something else, I would be like, are you crazy? I don't even have time for my work. I don't have time yes. to, you know, do ballroom dancing or something like that. So what would your response be to someone mm -hmm. who's kind of throwing up resistance to you and saying, I don't have the time to find time for something yeah. else? Yeah. Well, I say, first of all, I never tell somebody find time for something else. I start with what is one thing we can reduce or take off of your plate mm. and I, 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 get, I, I challenge any person to tell me that there's not one thing that they can do even 10 minutes less of oh so everything whatever you're doing do it a little less that's where we start because I know people are resistant you can't yes. come tell, tell someone to quit. pick up some sport or yeah, yeah no and when I say hobby do you like to read yes when is the last time you read for pleasure oh it's been years can you take 10 minutes tonight to get that book or that audio book? Mm -hmm. Can you take 10 minutes to uh, journal? Can you take 10 minutes to, to for deep, we, we, I even practice a lot of holistic, like deep breathing mm -hmm. in my sessions. Yeah. Can we take five minutes? Mm -hmm. You can't tell me you don't have five minutes. Mm -hmm. Can you take five minutes to stop scrolling Mm -hmm. on social media so that you can have something okay. to eat okay. and then they stay we start laughing because right. they're like shots fired all right, right. i get it right. Right. <laughs> but it takes time you know we, then we kind of keep digging but it's about when i develop a relationship that i can say those things and i'm like so really you really cannot you're telling me that you can't find time between 9 a.m and 5 p.m to eat something that's what you're telling me and I'm like, well, and then it gets into this whole issue. One of my, my big things that I work on women with is boundaries. Boundaries, yes. It comes down to most of us have poor boundaries where we are allowing our time, our focus, and our energy to be drained out to everything else except for ourselves. Um, it's called being selfish. <laughs> Yep, self-care boundaries are selfish. That's what we're taught yeah. as the strong black women. Yeah. That's what we're taught. Um, and I know, like, I, I love what you're asking me because this is what my, this is what people say to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I can hear it. I mean, I actually feel <laughs> the resistance coming up as we speak because um, I think it's almost a badge of honor mm -hmm. in some ways to say that I have all these balls in the air that I'm juggling. Yep. And I want to always appear as though I'm juggling well. Mm -hmm. right? With this smile. With the, the smile mm -hmm. and you know, I might go home and collapse, uh -huh. but when I come out, I'm gonna look good with my juggling balls. Yes, right? yes. Um, and here you are saying, well, you know, that's not real. <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, who are you to say that to that's me? Like, you know, you know, superwoman is a myth, mm -hmm. right? Um, but, and you're right. So it is a change. I would imagine your practice is overflowing. If anyone, any woman hears this, because I, and not just black women. Yeah, yes, uh, yes. Women across the board, mm -hmm. but I think it's, 
especially black women yes um feel like they have to do it all you know um even if they're married um, often they have the major responsibility mm -hmm. in the home and usually they're also working outside the home yes and unfortunately a lot of us aren't married and so then we definitely have the responsibility of being you know breadwinner to do all this kind of stuff yes. right mm -hmm. um and things suffer along the way and i think health is one thing that yeah. suffers i think um relationships suffer i think there's an absence of a male female relationship mm -hmm. often mm -hmm. because you don't have the time or energy or whatever and so yeah yeah you laid it out like our health suffers our relationships suffer our wealth you know like yeah. it's it's draining on all those major areas so tell us a little <laughs> bit more about you're, so now you're situated in Philadelphia. You've yes. traveled the globe. Yes. And you, you've come back home. Close to my parents. Oh, that's nice. And what is your practice now? And what are you doing currently? So I have my office. Well, you know, before COVID, I was all in person. My practice is the Center for Healing and Development. And I'm located in Valley Kenwood, right? You know, across the city line. And you're right. Like, my practice is basically full. So what I've decided to do is to reach more women is to start group programs, group coaching programs that are targeted to these specific skills that we're talking about, how to have healthier boundaries, how to put into practice, not just talk, but like how to implement things that are going to help with your daily momentum and helping you to have a, a healthier balance how to, um, I, I wrote a book, bound, bound The Boundaries to Bliss Blueprint to help with relationships. What's, say the name of your book again. It's The Boundaries to Bliss Blueprint okay. for women who are finally ready to win at love. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and that's also about this concept of self-care and self-love actually helping you to have healthier relationships. Sure versus whatever this other thing we have going on. All right, so how would someone find your book or how would someone find you? Um, and if you're not open, I mean, if your practice yeah. is too full, how would someone find out about your group practices? Mm -hmm. So you can find me at drnicolemontero.com. So D-R-N-I-C-O-L-E. M-O-N-T-E-I-R-O dot com. Um, you can also, that's where you'll find about the group coaching programs, the book. Um, I do master classes, free master classes oh. called Banish Burnout and Build Bliss. I'm serious about getting outside of the therapy room to reach women, right? Because even if I did therapy eight hours a day for five, it, that would be 40 women, yes. right? Yes. So I'm serious about reaching okay. women online through workshops, through group coaching, through retreats, through books, right? Because I feel like that allows a, an impact that's far greater than just me. Right, and so with the, you know, advent, with COVID and the use of telehealth, yes. I mean, you could now reach women out of state, out of country. Yes global global exposure for for your work 
The last, um, I have a group coaching program, the Boundaries to Bliss group coach. It's called the Boundaries to Bliss 30-Day Bootcamp. Okay. Right? So this is where we get into the boundaries and how to um, learn better self-care, how to speak up for yourself, but do it in a way where you're not, it's, not, it's aligned with you. The last one I ran, I had a woman from South Africa. Nice. I had a woman from India. Nice. Um, I've had people, you know, and it's not just Philadelphia, different parts Slowly. of the country. Yeah. Consistent with the work that you yes. yes. And you would be surprised at the commonalities, the struggles. No, I would not. I know you were. As, as a gynecologist, <laughs> I realized that on the surface, we may look very different. Mm -hmm. Um, we may eat differently, but our concerns and our issues are very similar. Yes, so. yes. I'm sure you see that, yes. That's, that's, that's fantastic. Um, so, one more time. Uh -huh. um, it's been a pleasure. It's been a real pleasure hearing. Um, I, I would, I guess my last question mm -hmm. to you would be, uh, is there... A typical woman who should be seeking out your care. I mean, could you say if you have these things going on in your life, uh -huh. you it would be worth considering checking out my programs. Yes. Could you describe that yes. woman? If you're a woman who everybody else thinks has it all together, mm. you look great on the outside, beautiful, have it all together, yet throughout the day you're feeling exhausted you're feeling on autopilot or like you're just going through the motions. You're feeling unappreciated. Like I'm here doing all this stuff and nobody even, if you have those thoughts in your mind, no one's saying thank you or you're feeling resentment or you feel that little thing that we get in the pit of our stomach when we're just like not feeling the way everybody sees us, then you need to reach out to me. And if you are you? successful, yes. you need to read. Most of the people I work with are very accomplished. It's not a matter of lack of like you're not, you know, mm -hmm. capable. Right. So, yeah, you can reach out to me at my website, drnicolemontero.com. You can email me at drnmonteiro at gmail.com. You can reach me on Instagram. I'm very that's another way I make videos. Go to Instagram and go to Chad Wellness, C-H-A-D-W-E-L-L-N-E-S-S. -S. Message me there. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm everywhere. Nicole Montero. And you can just reach out to me. I'm very accessible. If you're just wondering, like, I heard you talk about this masterclass or your program. My next uh, program is starting on May 9th. Oh, uh huh. Say that again. May 9th. And this, and how would they get to that program? You just message me, and and I'll you'll go from there. It's it doesn't matter where you are in the world. Um, it's online. I have we have online coaching. We have recorded lessons. I, I'll give you the whole rundown with it. But it's very powerful, and it doesn't require you to go. Some people talk about access. Yes. You don't even have to get out and come to my office. Well, and it's it's I'm so passionate about it. I'm glad you asked me about that because I love helping women in non-traditional ways outside of the office. That's good. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Dr. Montero, for yes. the work that you do. It was a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.